Part Eight of Tale One of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. Coming out of the law courts on the afternoon of January twenty eighth, at the triumphant end of a desperately fought will case, Keith saw on a poster the words Glove Lane Murder, Trial and Verdict. And with a rush of dismay he thought, Good God, I never looked at the paper this morning. The elation which had filled him a second before, the absorption he had felt for two days now in the case so hardly won, seemed suddenly quite sickeningly trivial. What on earth had he been doing to forget that horrible business even for an instant? He stood quite still on the crowded pavement, unable, really unable, to buy a newspaper. But his face was like a piece of iron when he did step forward and hold his penny out. There it was in the stop press. Glove Lane murder. The jury returned a verdict of guilty. Sentence of death was passed. His first sensation was simple irritation. How had they come to commit such an imbecility? Monstrous! The, the evidence! Then the futility of even reading the report, of even considering how they had come to record such a verdict, struck him with savage suddenness. There it was, and nothing he could do or say would alter it. No condemnation of this idiotic verdict would help reverse it. The situation was desperate indeed. That five minutes' walk from the law courts to his chambers was the longest he had ever taken. Men of decided character little know beforehand what they will do in certain contingencies. For the imaginations of decided people do not endow mere contingencies with sufficient actuality. Keith had never really settled what he was going to do if this man were condemned. Often in those past weeks he had said to himself, Of course, if they bring him in guilty, that's another thing. But now that they had, he was beset by exactly the same old arguments and feelings, the same instincts of loyalty and protection towards Lawrence and himself, intensified by the fearful imminence of the danger. And yet here was this man about to be hung for a thing he had not done. Nothing could get over that. But then he was such a worthless vagabond a ghoul who had robbed a dead body. If Larry were condemned in his stead, would there be any less miscarriage of justice? To strangle a brute who had struck you, by the accident of keeping your hands on his throat a few seconds too long? Was there any more guilt in that? Was there even as much as in deliberate theft from a dead man? Reverence for order, for justice, and established fact, will often march shoulder to shoulder with Jesuitry in natures to whom success is vital. In the narrow stone passage leading to his staircase, a friend had called out, Bravo, Darrant! That was a squeak! Congratulations! And with a bitter little smile Keith thought, Congratulations! I. At the first possible moment, he hurried back to the Strand, 
and hailing a cab he told the man to put him down at a turning near to Borrow Street. It was the girl who opened to his knock. Startled, clasping her hands, she looked strange to Keith in her black skirt and blouse of some soft, velvety stuff the color of faded roses. Her round, rather long throat was bare, and Keith noticed fretfully that she wore gold earrings. Her eyes so pitch dark against her white face, and the short fair hair which curled on to her neck seemed both to search and to plead. My brother? He is not in, sir, yet. Do you know where he is? No. He is living with you here now? Yes. Are you still as fond of him as ever, then? With a movement as though she despaired of words, she clasped her hand over her heart, and he said, I see. He had the same strange feeling as on his first visit to her, and when through the chink in the curtains he had watched her kneeling, of pity mingled with some faint sexual emotion. And crossing to the fire he asked, May I wait for him? Oh, please! Will you sit down?" But Keith shook his head, and with a catch in her breath she said, "'You will not take him from me. I should die.' He turned around on her sharply. "'I don't want him taken from you. I want to help you keep him. Are you ready to go away at any time?' "'Yes, oh, yes!' "'And he?' She answered almost in a whisper, Yes, but there is that poor man. That poor man is a graveyard thief, a hyena, a ghoul, not worthy of consideration. And the rasp in his own voice surprised him. Ah, she sighed, but I am sorry for him. Perhaps he was hungry. I have been hungry. You do things then that you would not. And perhaps he has no one to love. If you have no one to love, you can be very bad. I think of him often, in prison." Between his teeth Keith muttered, "'And Lawrence?' "'We do never speak of it. We are afraid.' "'He's not told you, then, about the trial?' Her eyes dilated. "'The trial! Oh, he was strange last night. This morning, too. He got up early. Is it, is it over? Yes. What has come? Guilty. For a moment Keith thought she was going to faint. She had closed her eyes and swayed so that he took a step and put his hands on her arms. Listen, he said, help me. Don't let Lawrence out of your sight. We must have time. I must see what they intend to do. They can't be going to hang this man. I must have time, I tell you. You must prevent his giving himself up." She stood, staring at his face, while he still held her arms, gripping into her soft flesh through the velvety sleeves. Do you understand? Yes, but if he has already— Keith felt the shiver which ran through her, and the thought rushed into his mind, My God! Suppose the police come around while I'm here. 
if Larry had indeed gone to them, if that policeman who had seen him here the night after the murder should find him here again just after the verdict. He said almost fiercely, Can I trust you not to let Larry out of your sight? Quick, answer. Clasping her hands to her breast, she answered humbly, I will try. If he hasn't already done this, watch him like a lynx. Don't let him go out without you. I'll come tomorrow morning early. You're a Catholic, aren't you? Swear to me that you won't let him do anything till he's seen me again. She did not answer, looking past him at the door, and Keith heard a key in the latch. There was Lawrence himself, holding in his hand a great bunch of pink lilies and white narcissi. His face was pale and haggard. He said quietly, Hello, Keith. The girl's eyes were fastened on Larry's face, and Keith, looking from one to the other, knew that he had never had more need for wariness. "'Have you seen?' he said. Lawrence nodded. His expression, as a rule so telltale of his emotions, baffled Keith utterly. "'Well?' "'I've been expecting it. The thing can't stand, that's certain.' but I must have time to look into the report. I must have time to see what I can do. Do you understand me, Larry? I must have time. He knew he was talking at random. The only thing was to get them away at once, out of reach of confession. But he dared not say so. Promise me that you'll do nothing, that you won't go out even till I've seen you tomorrow morning. Again Lawrence nodded and Keith looked at the girl. Would she see that he did not break that promise? Her eyes were still fixed immovably on Larry's face, and with the feeling that he could get no further, Keith turned to go. Promise me, he said. Lawrence answered, I promise. He was smiling. Keith could make nothing of that smile, nor of the expression in the girl's eyes, and saying, I have your promise, I rely on it. He went. End of Part 8 Part 9 To keep from any woman who loves knowledge of her lover's mood is as hard as to keep music from moving the heart. But when that woman has lived in suffering and for the first time knows the comfort of love, then let the lover try as he may to disguise his heart. No use. Yet by virtue of subtler abnegation she will often succeed in keeping it from him that she knows. When Keith was gone the girl made no outcry, asked no questions, managed that Larry should not suspect her intuition. All that evening she acted as if she knew of nothing preparing within him and through him, and within herself. His words, caresses, the very zest with which he helped her to prepare the feast, the flowers he had brought, the wine he made her drink, the avoidance of any word which could spoil their happiness, all, all told her. He was too inexorably gay and loving. Not for her to deprive herself of these by any sign or gesture which might betray her prescience.
poor soul. She took all, and would have taken more a hundredfold. She did not want to drink the wine he kept tilting into her glass, but with the acceptance learned by women who have lived her life, she did not refuse. She had never refused him anything. So much had been required of her by the detestable, that anything required by a loved one was but an honor. Lawrence drank deeply, but he had never felt clearer, never seen things more clearly. The wine gave him what he wanted, an edge to these few hours of pleasure, an exaltation of energy. It dulled his sense of pity, too. It was pity he was afraid of, for himself and for this girl. To make even this tawdry room look beautiful, with firelight and candlelight, dark amber wine in the glasses, tall pink lilies spilling their saffron, exuding their hot perfume, he and even himself must look their best. And with a weight as of lead on her heart, she managed that for him, letting him strew her with flowers and crush them together with herself. Not even music was lacking to their feast. Someone was playing a pianola across the street, and the sound, very faint, came stealing when they were silent, swelling, sinking, festive, mournful, having a far-off life of its own, like the flickering fire-flames before which they lay embraced, or the lilies delicate between the candles. Listening to that music, tracing with his finger the tiny veins on her breast, he lay like one recovering from a swoon. No parting, none, but sleep, as the firelight sleeps when flames die, as music sleeps on its deserted strings. And the girl watched him. It was nearly ten when he bade her go to bed, and after she had gone obedient into the bedroom, he brought ink and paper down by the fire. The drifter, the unstable, the good-for-nothing, did not falter. He had thought, when it came to the point, he would fail himself, but a sort of rage bore him forward. If he lived on and confessed, they would shut him up, take from him the one thing he loved, cut him off from her, sand up his only well in the desert, curse them, and he wrote by firelight, which mellowed the white sheets of paper, while against the dark curtain the girl, in her nightgown, unconscious of the cold, stood watching. Men, when they drown, remember their pasts. Like the lost poet he had gone with the wind. Now it was for him to be true in his fashion. A man may falter for weeks and weeks, consciously, subconsciously, even in his dreams, till there comes that moment when the only thing impossible is to go on faltering. The black cap, the little driven gray man looking up at it with a sort of wonder, faltering had ceased. He had finished now, and was but staring into the fire. No more, no more the moon is dead, and all the people in it, the poppy maidens strew the bed, will come in half a minute. Why did doggerel start up in the mind like that? 
Wanda, the weed flower become so rare he would not be parted from her. The fire, the candles, and the fire, no more the flame and flicker. And by the dark curtain the girl watched. End of Part 9 Part 10 Keith went not home, but to his club, and in the room devoted to the reception of guests, empty at this hour, he sat down and read the report of the trial. The fools had made out a case that looked black enough, and for a long time, on the thick, soft carpet which let out no sound of footfall, he paced up and down, thinking. He might see the defending counsel, might surely do that as an expert who thought there had been miscarriage of justice. They must appeal. A petition, too, might be started in the last event. The thing could, must, be put right, yet, if only Larry and that girl did nothing. He had no appetite, but the custom of dining is too strong, and while he ate he glanced with irritation at his fellow members. They looked so at their ease. Unjust, that this black cloud should hang over one blameless as any of them. Friends, connoisseurs of such things, a judge among them, came specially to his table to express their admiration of his conduct of that will-case. Tonight he had real excuse for pride, but he felt none. Yet in this well-warmed, quietly glowing room, filled with decorously eating, decorously talking men, he gained insensibly some comfort. This surely was reality. That shadowy business out there, only the drear sound of a wind one must and did keep out, like the poverty and grime which had no real existence for the secure and prosperous. He drank champagne. It helped to fortify reality, to make shadows seem more shadowy. And down in the smoking-room he sat before the fire, in one of those chairs which embalm after-dinner dreams. He grew sleepy there, and at eleven o'clock rose to go home. But when he had once passed down the shallow marble steps, out through the revolving door which let in no draughts, he was visited by fear, as if he had drawn it in with the breath of the January wind. Larry's face, and the girl watching it. Why had she watched like that? Larry's smile, and the flowers in his hand. Buying flowers at such a moment. The girl was his slave. Whatever he told her, she would do. But she would never be able to stop him. At this very moment he might be rushing to give himself up. His hand, thrust deep into the pocket of his fur coat, came in contact suddenly with something cold. The keys Larry had given him all that time ago. There they had lain forgotten ever since. The chance touch decided him. He turned off towards Borough Street, walking at full speed. He could but go again and see. He would sleep better if he knew that he had left no stone unturned. At the corner of that dismal street he had to wait for solitude before he made for the house which he now loathed with a deadly loathing. 
he opened the outer door and shut it to behind him. He knocked, but no one came. Perhaps they had gone to bed. Again and again he knocked, then opened the door, stepped in, and closed it carefully. Candles lighted, the fire burning, cushions thrown on the floor in front of it, and strewn with flowers. The table, too, covered with flowers and with the remnants of a meal. Through the half-drawn curtain he could see that the inner room was also lighted. Had they gone out, leaving everything like this? Gone out! His heart beat! Bottles! Larry had been drinking. Had it really come? Must he go back home with this murk on him, knowing that his brother was a confessed and branded murderer? He went quickly to the half-drawn curtains and looked in. Against the wall he saw a bed, and those two in it. He recoiled in sheer amazement and relief. Asleep, with curtains undrawn, lights left on. Asleep, through all his knocking. They must both be drunk. The blood rushed up in his neck. Asleep, and rushing forward again, he called out, Larry! Then, with a gasp, he went towards the bed. Larry! No answer. No movement. Seizing his brother's shoulder, he shook it violently. It felt cold. They were lying in each other's arms, breast to breast, lips to lips, their faces white in the light shining above the dressing-table. And such a shudder shook Keith that he had to grasp the brass rail above their heads. Then he bent down, and wetting his finger, placed it close to their joined lips. No two could ever swoon so utterly as that. Not even a drunken sleep could be so fast. His wet finger felt not the faintest stir of air, nor was there any movement in the pulses of their hands. No breath, no life. The eyes of the girl were closed. How strangely innocent she looked! Larry's open eyes seemed to be gazing at her shut eyes, but Keith saw that they were sightless. With a sort of sob he drew down the lid. Then, by an impulse that he could never have explained, he laid a hand on his brother's head and a hand on the girl's fair hair. The clothes had fallen down a little from her bare shoulder. He pulled them up, as if to keep her warm, and caught the glint of metal, a tiny gilt crucifix, no longer than a thumbnail, on a thread of steel chain, had slipped down from her breast into the hollow of the arm which lay around Larry's neck. Keith buried it beneath the clothes, and noticed an envelope pinned to the coverlet. Bending down, he read, Please give this at once to the police. Lawrence Durant. He thrust it into his pocket. Like elastic stretched beyond its uttermost, his reason, will, faculties of calculation, and resolve snapped to within him. He thought with incredible swiftness, I must know nothing of this. I must go. And almost before he knew that he had moved, he was out again in the street.
He could never have told of what he thought while he was walking home. He did not really come to himself till he was in his study. There, with trembling hand, he poured himself out whisky and drank it off. If he had not chanced to go there, the charwoman would have found them when she came in in the morning, and given that envelope to the police. He took it out. He had a right, a right to know what was in it. He broke it open. I, Lawrence Durant, come to die by my own hand, declare that this is a solemn and true confession. I committed what is known as the Glove Lane murder on the night of November the 27th last, in the following way, and on and on, to the last words. We didn't want to die, but we could not bear separation, and I couldn't face letting an innocent man be hung for me. I do not see any other way. I beg that there may be no post-mortem on our bodies. The stuff we have taken is some of that which will be found on the dressing-table. Please bury us together. Lawrence Durant, January the 28th, about 10 o'clock p.m. Full five minutes Keith stood with those sheets of paper in his hand. While the clock ticked, the wind moaned a little in the trees outside. The flames licked the logs with the quiet click and ruffle of their intense, far-away life down there on the hearth. Then he roused himself and sat down to read the whole again. There it was, just as Larry had told it to him, nothing left out, very clear, even to the addresses of people who could identify the girl as having once been Wallen's wife or mistress. It would convince, oh yes, it would convince. The sheets dropped from his hand. Very slowly he was grasping the appalling fact that on the floor beside his chair lay the life or death of yet another man, that by taking this confession he had taken it into his own hands the fate of the vagabond lying under sentence of death, that he could not give him back his life without incurring the smirch of this disgrace, without even endangering himself. If he let this confession reach the authorities, he could never escape the gravest suspicion that he had known of the whole affair during these two months. He would have to attend the inquest, be recognized by that policeman as having come to the archway to see where the body had lain, as having visited the girl the very evening after the murder. Who would believe in the mere coincidence of such visits on the part of the murderer's brother? But apart from that suspicion, the fearful scandal which so sensational an affair must make would mar his career, his life, his young daughter's life. Larry's suicide with this girl would make sensation enough as it was, but nothing to that other. Such a death had its romance, involved him in no way save as a mourner, could perhaps even be hushed up. The other, nothing could hush that up, nothing prevent its ringing to the housetops. He got up from his chair, and for many minutes roamed the room, unable to get his mind to bear on the issue. Images kept starting up before him, the face of the man who handed him wig and gown each morning, puffy and curious, with a leer on it he had never noticed before.
his young daughter's lifted eyebrows, mouth drooping, eyes troubled, the tiny gilt crucifix glinting in the hollow of the dead girl's arm, the sightless look in Larry's unclosed eyes, even his own thumb and finger pulling the lids down. And then he saw a street and endless people passing, turning to stare at him. And stopping in his tramp, he said aloud, Let them go to hell. Seven days wonder. Was he not trustee to that confession? Trustee! After all, he had done nothing to be ashamed of, even if he had kept knowledge dark. A brother! Who could blame him? And he picked up those sheets of paper. But, like a great murky hand, the scandal spread itself about him. Its coarse, malignant voice seemed shouting, Paper! Paper! Glove Lane murder! Suicide and confession of brother of well-known K.C. Well-known Casey's brother, murder and suicide, paper. Was he to let loose that flood of foulness? Was he, who had done nothing, to smirch his own little daughter's life, to smirch his dead brother, their dead mother, himself, his own valuable, important future? And all for a sewer rat. Let him hang. Let the fellow hang if he must. And that was not certain. Appeal, petition, he might, he should be saved. To have got thus far, and then, by his own action, topple himself down. With a sudden darting movement, he thrust the confession in among the burning coals, and a smile licked at the folds in his dark face, like those flames licking the sheets of paper, till they writhed and blackened. With the toe of his boot he dispersed their scorched and crumbling wafer. Stamp them in! Stamp in that man's life! Burnt! No more doubts, no more of this gnawing fear. Burnt! A man, an innocent sewer rat! Recoiling from the fire, he grasped his forehead. It was burning hot, and seemed to be going round. Well, it was done. Only fools without will or purpose regretted. And suddenly he laughed. So Larry had died for nothing. He had no will, no purpose, and was dead. He and that girl might now have been living, loving each other in the warm night, away at the other end of the world, instead of lying dead in the cold night here. Fools and weaklings regretted suffered from conscience and remorse. A man trod firmly, held to his purpose, no matter what. He went to the window and drew back the curtain. What was that? A gibbet in the air? A body hanging? Ah! Only the trees, the dark trees, the winter skeleton trees. Recoiling, he returned to his armchair and sat down before the fire. It had been shining like that, the lamp turned low, his chair drawn up, when Larry came in that afternoon two months ago. Bah! He had never come at all. It was a nightmare. He had been asleep. How his head burned! And leaping up, he looked at the calendar on his bureau. January the 28th. 
no dream. His face hardened and darkened. On! Not like Larry! On! End of part ten. End of tale number one.